0: Hi, I'm Grace.
1: And I'm Dalton. Welcome back to the second episode of our special summer season, where we're bringing you an insider's perspective into the historic 2020 election cycle.
2: This week, we interviewed Amber Achey, who is currently the Washington editor for Spectator USA and host of the Unfit to Print podcast by The Daily Caller, where she was formerly White House correspondent. She's also a former Hoya and Tony Blankley Fellow at the Steamboat Institute.
1: However, before we get into her journey into journalism, make sure you follow us on social media for the latest updates. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also reach us by emailing FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. Let's get into it. All right, Amber, thanks so much for joining us today on Fly on the Wall.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, to start, uh, you're a Hoya yourself and we're involved in politics on campus. Can you tell us about that experience and what was it like to navigate the political climate while you were here?
0: Sure. So I was really involved in College Republicans when I was at Georgetown. I was actually the chair um, for the end of my sophomore year, beginning of junior year. And uh, it was definitely difficult. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, The campus, as I'm sure you guys are aware, can tend to skew pretty liberal. And I definitely caught my share of flack from people on campus who weren't really interested in hearing ideas that were different from theirs. They basically wanted to just shame everyone into agreeing with all of their policy positions. It started as early as freshman year. I remember having a hard time making friends on my freshman year floor in New South because um, a lot of the other people who lived there were pretty progressive, pretty liberal. And this was smack in the middle of the reelection of uh, Barack Obama. So tensions were already pretty high. I had a lot of um, times when people would post mean signs on my dorm room door. Um, I was reported to the RA for trying to start a gun club because they said it made other students on campus unsafe. Uh, And then that continued basically for the rest of my time at Georgetown, but um, what I really found is that it made me a lot more secure in my beliefs um, because I was forced to defend them so often that I really had to do the research and put the work in to understand why I identified as a conservative. Um, so really in a lot of ways it backfired for the people who were trying to you know, shame us into submission because for me it made my beliefs even stronger. I believe I became even more conservative when I was at Georgetown. So I'm really thankful for that experience. It really prepared me for my career now where I am debating people pretty often whether on social media or on television. Uh, And being able to state my views and be secure in them is something that um, really was a a characteristic that I learned while I was at Georgetown.
2: For sure. Um, After you graduated, you joined the Daily Caller and now you're with Spectator USA. Um, What experiences at Georgetown or beyond drove you to pursue a career in journalism?
0: Right. So right after I graduated, I um, actually started working for the Leadership Institute's campus reform. And for people who are unfamiliar, their role is to call out liberal bias on college campuses. So all of those experiences I mentioned before at Georgetown were, you know, bringing Dr. Christina Hoffsommers to campus got me labeled a rape apologist and reported to the administration. Uh, That was something that I wanted to pursue in helping other college students navigate that experience. So working at Campus Reform and being able to report on all of these different instances of speakers being shut down or conservative clubs having their funding stripped from the campus administrators um, was a way for me to kind of fight back for people who had been through the same experience that I did. And then about a year later, um, I was looking at going more into the national politics direction of journalism. And that was when I decided to jump over to the Daily Caller. And as you mentioned, I'm now with Spectator USA.
2: So you've actually been hosting your own political podcast for a while now. What was like the inspiration behind, behind starting it and what has continued to drive your passion for it?
0: right when i first started at the daily caller i was a media reporter for about a year and a half so i was writing about media bias uh, and um, all of the various ways that double standards are evident in the media and the fact that so many journalists come from a left-wing background about a year into my time at the daily caller uh, maybe it was a little bit more than that maybe it was closer to two years we were having a talk among the editors and we realized that there wasn't really a good show or podcast that was solely dedicated to media criticism from the right. So not just calling out media bias, but talking about why the media pursue certain stories, ratings, all of these other things that you might read in like Brian Stelter's Reliable Sources newsletter, or you might see um, on a cable news show, but you don't really hear from a conservative perspective. So that was really the impetus behind the show. We decided to name it unfit to print, which is a play off of the New York Times slogan, all the news that's fit to print. And the podcast ended up really performing well. Um, We posted on YouTube, SoundCloud, and iTunes. It's a weekly podcast. And for me, it's sort of turned into an outlet to be able to talk about all of the stories I see throughout the week that just really, you know, break the nerves a little bit because I see that maybe a conservative perspective isn't represented in that story or there's a a hypocrisy that's being put on display by the people who are reporting that story. And just being able to call those types of instances out um, from my own platform and speak directly to people has been something that I found really empowering and it's been uh, really fun to produce as well.
1: That's awesome. Uh, So also from your time at the Daily Caller, you were their White House correspondent. Uh, what was the most surprising thing that you learned or experienced uh, through the press briefings that we all see on TV?
0: Sure. (laughs) I think actually the most surprising thing that I learned being in the press briefing room and even just hanging out there and reporting out of there um, is that there is a really symbiotic relationship between the white house and the press that a lot of people don't realize. And it's especially um, obfuscated now because there's this sense that the Trump administration is really tough on the press and they're attacking them constantly and calling them fake news. But at the same time, uh, they are both really reliant on one another. So a lot of the people that you see having these tantrums in the briefing room or asking these gotcha questions are the same people who are being invited to go back to these uh, background briefings or they're you know in lower or upper press schmoozing with the, the uh, communications officials in the Trump administration, because that's, of course, where they get a lot of their stories. And then meanwhile, there's people in the Trump administration who, you know, talk about the New York Times and the Washington Post as being these bears of fake news, but then they will leak a lot of information to them as well. So that's um, a part of the job that I think people outside of DC don't really understand. It really is a lot swampier than people realize. Um, but I will, I think that uh, being in the briefing room has been a really great reporting experience, just um, being able to develop sources and um, in terms of the briefings in particular, having to form a question that is both informative, but also um, really interesting has been something that I didn't really do until I became the White House correspondent. So it's been a really great experience. I actually still cover the White House now. For Spectator USA, um, but they've also tacked on covering Congress and the campaigns. So I do a little bit of everything.
1: Wow. So, on that note, uh, as both a vocal conservative and a journalist, how do you balance those two roles and where is it most difficult for you?
0: It's an interesting question because I think a lot of people on the left don't get that same question. They're just assumed to be these, you know, objective, unbiased arbiters of the news. I've always found that. I, uh, it makes people trust you more if you're honest about your political leanings when you're reporting. Uh, I've never been shy about the fact that I'm a conservative journalist and I hope that when people read my work, maybe they have that in the back of their mind but you know I'm always making sure that my sourcing is tight that what I'm reporting is factual and I have a good reputation among my colleagues for not reporting uh, fake news or not being overly biased in the sense that I'm going to leave out things that might challenge my own narrative or leave out the perspective from people who are not conservative in my stories. And when you read articles in places like the New York Times or the Washington Post or NBC News, you are going into it with this expectation that this person is an objective journalist when really they're probably someone who donated to the Hillary campaign uh, and people uh, don't have the luxury of reading those stories with the understanding that the reporter is coming from a particular political background. Um, so I always try to be honest about where I stand. Um, news has gotten so biased over the past 10 years, um, just in terms of um, people being actively opposed to a certain political party or political position, that it's always been um, my perception that it's better to be forthcoming about that from the get-go.
2: That's really interesting. And so earlier in February, you actually led a panel on tech censorship at CPAC, and you're also pretty active on social media yourself. So from your perspective, um, and given like recent tensions on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, where do you see the future of political censorship on social media?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. It's definitely concerning that Big tech companies, in many cases, wield as much power in terms of deciding what speech is acceptable and uh, what cultural uh, affairs are acceptable, uh, as much as government in many cases. Um, And that's something where if you look at the Republican Party and where it's headed, this is a concern among, um, you know, more populist and nationalist wings of the party because conservatism has always been about limited government but now we're starting to realize that we swung a little bit too far in the other direction and we've empowered big business to a point where they're able to control so much of our lives so one of the things that was talked about on that um tech censorship panel at cpac was how these companies can control things like what your children are exposed to um they have these uh these things on their platform that make them addicting to children Um, and Josh Hawley, of course, is one of the senators who's trying to tackle that issue. So when we're looking at the future of politics, we have to question why are we giving so much power to people who um, are able to censor or choose who they want to hear from and who they want people to hear from Uh, and they have no oversight from government whatsoever. Twitter, in many ways, has become basically the de facto campaign platform for, uh, at the very least, uh, President Trump, if not Joe Biden as well. And that can be really damaging to our democracy if they are picking and choosing who gets their content amplified and who gets kicked off of the platform for allegedly violating terms of service.
1: Wow. Yeah, you're right that we're living in kind of weird times. And so based on those unprecedented times and the role of social media and all that uh, among it, you're often critical of the mainstream media, but you're also a journalist yourself. Uh, So I'm wondering, what do you see as the best and worst aspects of the broader media in our current times?
0: I think the worst aspect of the media is the sensationalism that's been happening. Um, And this is something that comes with cable news, especially. When I was first working at the Daily Caller as a media reporter, I was watching cable news for about eight to 10 hours a day. And I basically had three TVs side by side, one with MSNBC, one with CNN, and one with Fox. And the channels are actually a, a lot more similar than people realize. They cover a lot of the same stories. They might have different talking points, but they're all picking the most sensational, you know, exciting or bloody part of a story to try to lead because it's all about ratings. Uh, And in the digital space, it's all about being able to get clicks or subscribers or whatever monetary stream is going to sustain your news service. So it's a lot more difficult now for people to provide a balanced approach to the news or even just to cover things like human interest stories, um, stories that would appeal to everyday Americans but don't necessarily get the same traffic that uh, you know, like a video of a police killing might get on television. So the natural result is that Everything gets really divisive because all of the stories that the media is covering have to be these really sexy juicy stories That have some element of conflict in them. So I think that's probably the worst part of the media the best part of the media landscape right now is that because so much of it is online, we are able to have these independent new outlets fill a lot of the space that has been left uh, Uncovered by the left-wing media So there's been so many new conservative and independent media outlets coming up in the digital atmosphere Um, And really speaking to people who for a long time felt like the media wasn't taking their concerns seriously or was even uh, actively condescending to them. So the fact that there's not as much gatekeeping in terms of who can be a journalist or uh, who can create a media outlet has been, I think, a really good thing for people who really want to um, have someone to speak for them. And that's what I try to do. Um, That's the gap that I try to bridge, being a journalist who also criticizes other journalists is I come from A more rural working class background, and I know there's not a lot of journalists who have that background. It's definitely a very elitist space, Um, so I'm always making sure that in my work I'm trying to be a voice for the voiceless, for the people who aren't normally represented in the media space.
1: Yeah, so on that point, we're obviously on a podcast here, you host one yourself. Uh, What do you see as the role of, as you said, kind of more independent? or even like long form media um, outlets that are kind of arising like the podcasting world, where do you see the role of that in the future?
0: It's beyond huge. Joe Rogan is of course the most listened to or watched podcast in America. His shows are like three hours long. And he has on guests that cable news will not touch. I mean, he talks to people like Tim Pool about tech censorship. He has on Tulsi Gabbard. He has on Andrew Yang. And he has a lot of these conversations that um, the American public is really wants to listen to, but that um, the traditional media outlets, for whatever reason, either because they're too wedded to the Democratic establishment, or they're afraid of getting canceled, uh, People who have an independent platform are able to do that because they're not relying on these traditional funding streams. Um, Joe Rogan, of course, has a background as a comedian, which makes him even more um, opposed to cancel culture and able to overcome that particular challenge. So these podcasts, these independent media outlets um, are really able to change the conversation in really substantial ways. And it's proven that there's an audience for that just based on how many people are watching and listening to these new outlets.
2: That's really interesting. And one of the reasons why we're kind of doing this new summer series, which we haven't done um, in the past, is to give our listeners more insight into current events and also what's happening with the elections. And so what do you think um, the next few months really look like leading up to the election, especially given um, what happened with the coronavirus and now recently with the protests?
0: I certainly think that uh, Trump's, uh, I guess, campaign style is going to have to be a little bit different because he was planning, of course, on running on this really great economy and the coronavirus economic shutdown Um, Really challenged that. There's been a little bit of a bounce back. Uh, The numbers today show that retail shopping is up over 17%, which is a good sign that people are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable. But you still have, of course, tens of millions of people who were placed out of work. So now the president is going to have to run on things like his coronavirus response, as well as his response to the recent riots around the country after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. These are going to be much more divisive issues. Than the economy. Um, and so that's going to make his reelection campaign a lot more difficult. On the other hand, Joe Biden, of course, has been stuck basically in his basement for the past couple of months and hasn't been able to be on the campaign trail interacting with voters. Um, Trump, meanwhile, is going to start his rallies back up. His first one is in late June in Oklahoma, which those are a huge boon for him. Um, He often has a lot of Democrats that attend those rallies, so that's a good way for his campaign to collect voter data. So it's really hard to say what exactly the consequence of the coronavirus and the current state of the country is going to be on the campaigns because so much could change between now and then. We could get hit with the second wave and all of a sudden the traditional campaign strategy is thrown out again and Trump has another shattered economy to deal with. Or we continue through a recovery, things get back to normal and people's attention spans are really short and we'll see the election be about the same issues that they would have been if it were held back in December or January.
1: Interesting. Uh, so for our last question, we'd like to give our listeners a little insight into different careers. So what is your favorite part about being a journalist and why do you continue in the profession?
0: Two things. The first is that I love covering different topics every single day. Over the course of my time at The Spectator, I've been there since February, I've written about the defund the police movement, I've written about cupcakes, (laughs) I've written uh, about uh, Jared Kushner's influence in the Trump administration. So just being able to cover so many topics and learn about so many different issues is something that as a politico is really um, a passion of mine and it's something that you get to do as a journalist Journalists are basically people who are experts in nothing, but um, know a little bit about everything, which can be a good and a bad thing. I personally really like it because it makes every day different. I never get bored of the job. And the second thing is I love the challenge of journalism, trying to be the first to a story or coming up with an original angle that someone else hasn't covered yet um, is something that keeps the job exciting and it really speaks to my sense of competition So it's not for everybody. Um, If you're looking for job security or um, a lot of uh, monetary stability, it probably isn't the career path for you. But if you're someone who enjoys writing and speaking to people and um, challenging yourself every single day to learn something new, then I would highly recommend Journalism.
1: Awesome, thanks so much for
2: joining us, Amber.
0: Thanks again for having me. Thank you.
2: We hope you enjoyed the second episode on covering the country during an unprecedented election cycle. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. We
1: always love to hear your thoughts, so shoot us a message at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions.
2: Thanks for listening and tune in next week as we head onto the campaign trail.